Howdy everybody. The following common law lesson is brought to you by Republic Keepers, where we learn to inform, to educate, defend, and to self-govern. Please visit the website at www.republickeepers.com. Today's audio is lesson two of an educational series on common law jury training. Hope you enjoy. Okay, this is continuing the, uh, the jury training course. Today is March 22nd, 2011, and we're at section two of the first chapter. This is essentially written by Lysander Spooner. The force and justice of the preceding argument cannot be evaded by saying that the government is chosen by the people. Maybe I'll go back and just read this last thing again to kind of warm us up. The question then between trial by jury as thus described and trial by the government is simply a question between liberty and despotism. The authority to judge what are the powers of the government and what the liberties of the people must necessarily be vested in one or other of the parties themselves, the government, or the people, because there is no third party to whom it can be entrusted. If the authority be vested in the government, the government is absolute, and the people have no liberties except such as the government sees fit to indulge them with. If, on the other hand, that authority be vested in the people, then the people have all the liberties as against the government, except such as substantially the whole people, through a jury, choose to disclaim. And the government can exercise no power except such as substantially the whole people, through a jury, consent that it may exercise. Section 2. The force and justice of the preceding argument cannot be evaded by saying that the government is chosen by the people, that in theory it represents the people, that it is designed to do the will of the people, and that its members are all sworn to observe the fundamental or constitutional I'm gun shy about this scroll now. Constitutional law instituted by the people, and that its acts are therefore entitled to be considered the acts of the people, and that to allow a jury representing the people to invalidate the acts of the government would therefore be arraying the people against themselves. Now, there are two answers to such an argument. One answer is that in a representative government, there is no absurdity or contradiction, nor any arraying of the people against themselves, and requiring that the statutes or enactments of the government shall pass the ordeal 
of any number of separate tribunals before it shall be determined that they are to have the force of laws. Our American constitutions have provided five of these separate tribunals, to wit, representatives, senate, executive. The executive has a qualified veto upon the passage of laws in most of our governments and an absolute veto in all of them upon the execution of any laws which he deems unconstitutional because his oath to support the Constitution, as he understands it, forbids him to execute any law that he deems unconstitutional. So let's go back and list the five. The representatives, the Senate, the executive, jury, and judges. And have made it necessary that each enactment shall pass the ordeal of all of these separate tribunals before its authority can be established by the punishment of those who choose to transgress it. And there is no more absurdity or inconsistency in making a jury one of these several tribunals than there is in making the representatives or the Senate or the executive or the judges one of them. There is no more absurdity in giving a jury a veto upon the laws than there is in giving a veto to each of these other tribunals. The people are more arrayed against themselves when a jury puts its veto upon a statute which the other tribunals have sanctioned than they are when the same veto is exercised by the representatives, the Senate, the executive, or the judges. But another answer to the argument that the people are arrayed against themselves when a jury hold an enactment of the government invalid is that the government and all the departments of the government are merely the servants and agents of the people, not invested with arbitrary or absolute authority to bind the people, but required to submit all their enactments to the judgment of a tribunal more fairly representing the whole people before they carry them into execution by punishing any individual for transgressing them. If the government were not thus required to submit their enactments to the judgment of the country before executing them upon individuals, if, in other words, the people had reserved to themselves no veto upon the acts of the government, the government, instead of, instead of being a mere servant and agent of the people, would be an absolute despot over the people. It would have all the power in its own hands because the power to punish carries all other powers with it. A power that can of itself and by its own authority punish disobedience and compel obedience and submission and is above all responsibility for the character of its laws. 
In short, it is a despotism. And it is of no consequence to inquire. Oh, what did I do? It is of no consequence to inquire how a government came to this power to punish, whether by prescription, by inheritance, by usurpation, or by delegation from the people. If it have now but got it, the government is absolute. It is plain, therefore, that if the people have invested the government with power to make laws that absolutely bind the people, and to punish the people for transgressing those laws, the people have surrendered their liberties unreservedly into the hands of the government. It is of no avail to say, in answer to this view of the case, that in surrendering their liberties into the hands of the government, the people took an oath from the government that it would exercise its power within, within certain constitutional limits. For when did oaths ever restrain a government that was otherwise unrestrained? Or when did a government fail to determine that all its acts were within the constitutional and authorized limits of its power? If it were permitted to determine that question for itself. Neither is it of any avail to, avail to say that if the government abuse its power and enact unjust and oppressive laws, the government may be changed by the influence of discussion and the exercise of the right of suffrage or the vote. Discussion can do nothing to prevent the enactment or procure the repeal of unjust laws unless it be understood that the discussion is to be followed by resistance. Tyrants care nothing for discussions. They are to end only in discussions. Discussions which do not interfere with the enforcement of their laws are but idle wind to them. Suffrage is equally powerless and unreliable. It can be exercised only periodically, and tyranny must at least be born until the time for suffrage comes. Besides, when the suffrage is exercised, it gives no guarantee for the repeal of existing laws that are oppressive, and no security against the enactment of new ones that are equally so. The second body of legislators are liable and likely to be just as tyrannical as the first. If it be said that the second body may be chosen for their integrity, the answer is that the first were chosen for that very reason and yet proved tyrants. The second will be exposed to the same temptations as the first and will be just as likely to prove tyrannical. Who ever heard that succeeding legislatures were on the whole more honest than those that preceded them? 
What is there in the nature of men or things to make them so? If it be said that the first body were chosen from motives of injustice, the facts prove that there is a portion of society who desire to establish injustice. And if they were powerful or artful enough to procure the election of their instruments to compose the first legislature, they will be likely to be powerful or artful enough to procure the election of the same or similar instruments to compose the second. The suffrage, therefore, and even a change of legislators guarantees no change of legislation, certainly no change for the better. Even if a change for the better actually comes, It comes too late, because it comes only after more or less injustice has been irreparably done. But at best, the right of suffrage can be exercised only periodically. And between the periods, the legislatures are wholly irresponsible. No despot was ever more entirely irresponsible in our Republican legislatures during the period for which they are chosen. They can neither be removed from their office nor called to account while in their office nor punished after they leave their office, be their tyranny what it may. Moreover, the judicial and executive departments of the government are equally irresponsible to the people and are only responsible by impeachment and dependence for their salaries to those irresponsible legislators. This dependence of the judiciary and executive upon the legislature is a guarantee that they will always sanction and execute its laws, whether just or unjust. Thus, the legislatures hold the whole power of the government in their hands and are at the same time utterly irresponsible for the manner in which they use it. If now this government, the three branches thus really united in one, can determine the validity of and enforce its own laws, it is for the time being entirely absolute and wholly irresponsible to the people. But this is not all. These legislatures and lators and this government, so irresponsible while in power, can perpetuate their power at pleasure if they can determine what legislative legislation is authoritative upon the authoritative upon the people and can enforce obedience to it. For they can not only declare their power perpetual, but they can enforce submission to all legislation that is necessary to secure its perpetuity. They can, for example, prohibit all discussions of the rightfulness of their authority, forbid the use of suffrage, prevent the election of any successors, disarm, plunder, imprison, 
and even kill all who refuse submission. If, therefore, the government, all departments united, be absolute for a day, that is, if it can for a day enforce obedience to its own laws, it can in that day secure its power for all time, like the queen who wished to reign but for a day, and in that day caused the king, her husband, to be slain and usurped his throne. Nor will it avail to say that such acts would be unconstitutional, and that unconstitutional acts may be lawfully resisted. For everything a government pleases to do will to do will, of course, be determined to be constitution. constitutional. If the government itself be permitted to determine the question of the constitutionality of its own acts. Excuse me, I'm going to read that again. Nor will it avail to say that such acts would be unconstitutional and that unconstitutional acts may be lawfully resisted. For everything a government pleases to do will, of course, be determined to be constitutional. If the government itself be permitted to determine the question of the constitutionality of its own acts. Those who are capable of tyranny are capable of perjury to sustain it. The conclusion, therefore, is that any government that can for a day enforce its own laws without appealing to the people or to a tribunal fairly representing the people for their consent is in theory an absolute government irresponsible to the people and can perpetuate, perpetuate its power at pleasure. The trial by jury is based upon a recognition of this principle and therefore forbids the government to execute any of its laws by punishing violators in any case whatsoever without first getting the consent of the country or the people through a jury. In this way, the people at all times hold their liberties in their own hands and never surrender them, surrender them, even for a moment, into the hands of the government. Trial by jury, then, gives to any and every individual the liberty at any time to disregard or resist any law, whatever of the government, if he be willing to submit to the decision of a jury the questions whether the law be intrinsically just and obligatory and whether his conduct in disregarding or resisting it were right in itself. Any law which does not in such trial obtain the unanimous sanction of 12 men taken at random from the people and judging according to the standard of justice in their own minds, free from all dictation and authority of the government, 
may be transgressed and resisted with impunity by whomsoever pleases to transgress or resist it. And if there be no so much as a reasonable doubt of the justice of the laws, the benefit of that doubt must be given to the defendant and not to the government, so that the government must keep its laws clearly within the limits of justice if it would ask a jury to enforce them. The trial by jury authorizes all this, and it is a sham and a hoax utterly worthless for protecting the people against the oppression. If it does not authorize an individual to resist the first and least act of injustice or tyranny on the part of the government, it does not authorize him to resist the last and the greatest. If it does not authorize individuals to nip tyranny in the bud, it does not authorize them to cut it down when its branches are filled with the ripe fruits of plunder and oppression. Those who deny the right of a jury to protect an individual in resisting an unjust law of the government deny him all legal defense whatsoever against oppression. The right of revolution, which tyrants in mockery accord to mankind, is no legal right under a government if it is only a natural right to overturn a government. The government itself never acknowledges this right, and the right is practically established only when and because the government no longer exists to call it into question. The right, therefore, can be exercised with impunity only when it is exercised victoriously. All unsuccessful attempts at revolution, however, <clears throat> however justifiable pliable in themselves, are punished as treason, if the government be permitted to judge of the treason. The government itself never admits the injustice of its laws as a legal defense for those who have attempted a revolution and failed. The right of revolution, therefore, is a right of no practical value, except for those who are stronger than the government. So long, therefore, as the oppressions of a government are kept within such limits as simply not to exasperate against it a power greater than its own, the right of a revolution cannot be appealed to and is therefore inapplicable to the case. This affords a wide field for tyranny, and if a jury cannot here intervene, the oppressed are utterly defenseless. It is manifest that the only security against the tyranny of the government, the tyranny of the government, lies in forcible resistance to the execution of the injustice, because the injustice will certainly be ex executed unless it be forcibly resisted. And if it but suffered to be executed, it must then be borne. 
for the government never makes compensations for its own wrongs. Since then, since then, this forcible resistance to the injustice of the government is the only possible means of preserving liberty. It is indispensable to all legal liberty that this resistance should be legalized. It is perfectly self-evident that where there is no legal right to resist the oppression of the government, there can be no legal liberty. And here it is all important to notice that practically speaking, there can be no legal right to resist the oppression of the government unless there be some legal tribunal other than the government and wholly independent of and above the government to judge between the government and those who resist its oppressions. In other words, to judge what laws of the government are to be obeyed and what may be resisted and held for naught. The only tribunal known to our laws for this purpose is a jury. If a jury have not the right to judge between the government and those who disobeys its laws and resist its oppressions, the government is absolute and the people, legally speaking, are slaves. Like many other slaves, they may have sufficient courage and strength to keep their masters somewhat in check, but they are nevertheless known to be to the law only as slaves. That this right of resistance was recognized as a common law right when the ancient and genuine trial by jury was enforced is not only proved by the nature of the trial itself, but is acknowledged by history. Note, the relation established between a lord and his vassal by the feudal tenure, far from containing principles of any servile and implicit obedience, permitted the compact to be dissolved in case of its violation by either party. This extended as much to the sovereign as to the inferior lords. If a vassal was aggrieved, and if justice was denied him, he sent a defiance, that is a renunciation of fealty to the king, and was entitled to enforce redress at the point of his sword. It then became a contest of strength as between two independent potentates and was terminated by treaty, advantageous or otherwise, according to the fortune of war. There remained the original principle that allegiance, dependence, allegiance depended conditionally upon good treatment and that an appeal might be lawfully made to arms against an oppressive government. Nor was this, we may be sure, left for extreme necessity or thought to require a long enduring forbearance. In modern times, 
a king compelled by his subjects' swords to abandon any pretension would be supposed to have ceased to reign, and the express recognition of such a right as that of insurrection has justly deemed inconsistent with the majesty of the law. But ruder ages held, had ruder sentiments. Force was necessary to repel force, and men accustomed to see the king's authority defied by a private riot were not much shocked when it was resisted in defense by public freedom. And this is from a document in Three Middle Ages, 242 by Hallam. The right of resistance is recognized by the Constitution of the United States as a strictly legal and constitutional right. It is so recognized, first by the provision that the trial of all crimes, except in the case of impeachment, shall be by jury. That is, by the country and not the government. Secondly, by the provision that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This constitutional security for the right to bear arms, keep and bear arms, implies the right to use them as much as a constitutional security for the right to buy and keep food which have implied the right to eat it. The Constitution, therefore, takes it for granted that the people will judge of the conduct of the government and that, as they have the right, they will also have the sense to use arms whenever the necessity of the case justifies it. And it is a sufficient and legal defense for a person accused of using arms against the government if he can show to the satisfaction of a jury or even any one of a jury that the law he resisted was an unjust one. In the American state constitutions also, this right of resistance to the oppression of government is recognized in various ways as a natural, legal, and constitutional right. In the first place, it is so recognized by provisions establishing the trial by jury, thus requiring that accused persons shall be tried by the country instead of the government. In the second place, it is recognized by many of them as, for example, those of Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida by provisions expressly declaring that the people shall have the right to bear arms. And many of them also, as for example, those of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Florida, Iowa, and Arkansas, by provisions in their bills of rights declaring that men have a natural, inherent, and an inalien unalienable right of defending their lives and liberties 
This, of course, means that they have a right to defend them against any injustice on the part of the government and not merely on the part of private individuals because the object of all bills of rights is to assert the rights of individuals and the people as against the government and not as against private persons. It would be a matter of ridiculous supererogation to assert in a constitution of government the natural right of men to defend their lives and liberties against private trespassers. Many of these bills of rights also assert the natural right of all men to protect their property, that is, to protect it against the government. It would be unnecessary and silly indeed to assert in a constitution of government the natural right of individuals to protect their property against thieves and robbers. The constitutions of New Hampshire and Tennessee also declare the doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive the good and happiness of mankind. The legal effect of these constitutional recognitions of the right of individuals to defend their property, liberties, and lives against the government is to legalize resistance to all injustice and oppression of every name and nature whatsoever on the part of the government. But for this right of resistance on the part of the people, all governments would become tyrannical to a degree of which few people are aware. Constitutions are utterly worthless to restrain the tyranny of governments unless it be understood that the people will, by force, compel the government within the constitutional limit. Practically speaking, no government knows any limits to its power except the endurance of the people. But that the people are stronger than the government and will resist in extreme cases, our governments would be little or nothing else than organized systems of plunder and oppression. All, or nearly all, the advantages there is in fixing any constitutional limits to the power of a government is simply to give notice to the government of the point at which it will meet with resistance. If the people are then as good as their word, they may keep the government within the bounds they have set for it. Otherwise, it will disregard them as is proved by the example of all our American governments, in which the Constitution have all become obsolete at the moment of their adoption for nearly all quite or quite all purposes except the appointment of officers, who at once became practically absolute except so far as they are restrained by the fear of popular resistance. The bounds set to the power of the government 
by the trial by jury will hereafter be shown are those that the government shall never touch the property, person, or natural or civil rights of an individual against his consent, except in pursuance and execution of a judgment or decree rendered by a jury in each individual case. Upon such evidence and such law as are satisfactory to their own understandings and conscience, consciences irrespective of all legislation of the government. That concludes the reading for today and study for today. These are very, very significant concepts and it is not intended to incite anyone to be against the government or fight the government, but as a means to explain what rights you have to protect yourself from the government and to keep it in check. It is the right and the, the power of the jury that is used to do that. Any questions? I think these words are myself, I'm I'm really gonna have to read them over and over to where I can you know, they're almost second nature because some of it can sound like you're you're advocating revolution. But no, no no no. It's saying Governments are impersonal legal fictions. Now there's humans in it, but in the interpretation of their duties, it can, in the need to be resourceful and earn a salary, or then we have others who say, maybe individuals' personal property should not be allowed. We should all own it collectively. When did he write this? The 1800s. I'll have to get and find out. My Sanders. Since that, yes. Since that time, we've we've seen like most all of this has happened, but we've learned something since then about what is beyond what is yet to occur once the jury loses its power to the government. Mm -hmm. We've experienced that in our time with the political warfare the parties go through. People fighting against themselves politically. It's probably true, Will. Pretty prophetic, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's an amazing document. You can see why I didn't get much publicity in law school. <laughs> right. Was he not the postmaster or something at one time? I'm not sure. 
Could you tell me how to spell his name? L-Y-S-A-N-D-E-R S-P-O-O-N-E-R S-P-O-O-N-E-R Thank you very much. And there are books that I think that he's written that but this is just, you know, you 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 want to make sure you know you can extract things out of here and use them to in in an improper way. But all he's explaining is, uh, I mean, it's such a profound argument of the reason for not allowing trial by jury to disappear, to not have it taken over by the judges or the government. And it's astounding that we're getting it back if we work it. Now, the objective of this course is to have all parties who are going to part of our juries understand this. So they don't they have a basis for resisting and not fearing the jury's duty is to stand in that breach. It is our only, only real protection. Knowledgeable jurists. Courageous jurists utilizing the rule of law and evolving and not revol not revolutions. And Is that, that excuse me, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, and that fact of being knowledgeable and courageous is crucial because Having one's fate turned over to an uneducated jury with lack of any courage is is not a good fate. Especially when they can be instructed. Absolutely. What to ignore and maybe even punished if they don't follow. This is this. I think we ought to have a Lysander Spooner Award. Mm -hmm. Wow! Every year for the one who best exemplifies that spirit and knowledge. Who making you know he holds the Lysander Spooner chair. You remember the part of this you were reading where he was saying that the legislature will if not watched carefully, will descend into the entropy of uh, <laughs> tyranny. Yes. That's that's quite frightening. Well, do you remember my story about John Adams? I think I told it one night on talk shoot. He did a survey, I mean a historic, at one time there, there it is believed that the best libraries were on earth, well, on earth were here. 
in this country because of the distance and they, they looked for valuable and they saved them and preserved them and protected them and studied them and he was interested in the structure and the I, I call it the architecture of a government like where there's three branches and there's this and there's this little clause that lets Washington D.C. be different but in that he in his study he found out historically monarchies descend into tyranny aristocracies descend into oligarchies democracies descend to anarchy without fail example after example after example and when they sat down and thought about it they said well you know monarchies are best for certain problems and yeah and a good commission of intelligent bright uh, specialized knowledge commission is good for some and then the people themselves you know have a tendency to have good common sense so they were the three branches the lawmaking branches of the government with separations of power meaning now representatives don't you go monkeying over there where you shouldn't senators you stay where you belong and Mr. President my goodness so we I think my experience in the governance of dealing with the Republic State of Texas and its relationships to the national I see things that are in here um, you know all the time where somebody wants to act and goes ahead and does it and it's and it's walking on somebody else's Earth or responsibility without any care that it's a separation of power and it's a trespass. And it's embarrassing because when it fails or creates fights or it holds things up and progress is not made, it's, it's embarrassing to find out that a country like ours has been so kept away from the knowledge we should have had just kept away from it man what a place this could be very true and can yet be that's true that's true John now after this morning's discussion and will be absolutely because you need yes. to tell them drivers to you're going to fire them if they don't take the brakes off the wheels of progress <laughs> amen well this this reinforces my uh, change a little bit in my uh, direction this morning uh, 
Bill. Yes. It says here we use the jury every chance we can. Don't ever hesitate. We use the jury every chance we can and we build a respect for the jury in men's minds and we build a faith in the jury in men's minds and we utilize it to bring about the changes we want when government drifts and goes astray. The remedy. We've needed the remedy. We need to step in and do that. It says here that the people in government are restrained by the fear of popular resistance. I think I agree with that. When they know how the legislatures know that, well, look, it's not only the Supreme Court or the other members of my party or those in cahoots with us from the other party. But look, you know, each and every one of the, of the people out there can cause this to be tested in a jury of their peers. Not just wait for some judge in, a, in Florida to declare it unconstitutional or have a judge in Wisconsin say, well, the law this legislature passed is going to do some damage here, so we need to hold off on it a while. We're, I'm just going to issue a, an injunction against its implementation. Well, if they knew that a jury of their peers were people... Now, the one mistake you must not make in the case of the jury, we're really talking about damages that have occurred. Not prospective. Well, what does that say? That says that we must all become makers of records. We must pay attention to what is involved and what we're doing so that we truly know when we've been damaged so that you can go to the jury for a redress of the grievance. You can't go in speculating. You can't go in, well, he said, he said, you must be able to establish it. And I call that the making of a record. And one of the best ways of making a record is to maintain a diary on a given subject matter written by hand. Date, times, and written by hand. It's not been done by some expert on a typewriter or a keyboard and printed. It's in your hand which makes it much more likely that it really is true. Isn't, isn't there a 
a gray area when you talk about damages that have occurred rather than potential damages when there is a legitimate threat of damage or loss? For example, do we have to wait until someone is murdered if there is serious threat that would look like that's impending before we before there is some prohibition? Well, that's conservator of the peace. Okay. That, that means the sheriff's on your side and the police are on your side. Got it. Okay. And and the the idea of making the record, we learn to do that so that you have available the information you need when it is necessary to do something that is grievous. Now let's take, for example, Obamacare. Millions of people keeping records of how it's working and whether it's damaged them. There's going to be somebody hurt somewhere, probably fairly quickly. If we leave it up to one lone sovereign in each state to serve as an investigator, to try to find it, isolate it, gather the evidence, do what they can, it is a much more unlikely grievance to be redressed. If it truly is a threat, it will have been exercised rather quickly if everyone understood this and everyone had their juries. Is that hard? Is that difficult to understand? I don't think it is. Thank you. No, sir. So we now know, and we're learning quickly, what it's like to be a sovereign on the land. And it should be pretty exciting. It's no longer an idle condition. Isn't it amazing how the difference, the sense of responsibility that should be building in you? compared to what it was when you were expecting to be taken care of in your old age? You don't talk about just taking money from your grandchildren. You talk about providing an environment in which your grandchildren can survive free. Well, pretty good thinking for Mr. Spooner, let me tell you. When you get done with Mr. Spooner, try Blackstone. <laughs> oh, yeah, we got the whole common law thing to go through. My books have still not arrived.
so the uh, I need to talk to my uh, can we stop the recording now? Yeah, sure. Just a minute.